0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: The last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the first couple of sentences in the book of Ephesians. You can turn to Ephesians 1 if you want to, but we're not likely to get there. (laughs) If we were to continue in the book of Ephesians, which we will do by the end of this morning, we will read that in him, says verse 13... After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, Paul has just laid out the gospel of your salvation. He has just talked about what the Father does, that the Father has chosen us, elected us before the foundation of the world, has written our names down, has predestined us. And all of that is done through Christ, through the Son, through the blood, Through the cross work of Jesus Christ, that is how people get saved, and therefore Paul calls it the gospel of your salvation. But having believed that, having heard it, then you are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise. And that is the first place in the book of Ephesians where the Holy Spirit is introduced. So far, we've been hearing about what the Father has done for us and what the Son has done for us, and now the Holy Spirit is introduced. That is what is known as the ontological trinity. There is the theme to the songs we sang this morning. All of them had very definite Trinitarian themes to them. Do you know the word ontology? It's just a branch of metaphysics that that talks about the nature of things, how things work, the relationships of being, that is basically ontology. So when I say the ontological trinity, I'm just simply using a big fancy word so that you'll all be impressed with me. But it just simply means what is the nature, what is the being of God? And God describes himself all the way through the Bible as being a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So sometimes when we hear about the Holy Spirit, we get this sense that it's kind of mysterious, kind of a a very mystical thing, but that should not limit our thinking about the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to take a biblical look at the description of the Holy Spirit so that we have a better sense of who the Holy Spirit is and what his participation is within the ontological trinity. The whole Bible, from front to back, talks about the Spirit of God. You don't get any further than the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-2, and immediately you hear about the Spirit of God. Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So really, before anything was created... We are introduced to the notion of God sending his spirit, that his own spirit hovered over the waters of creation. You get all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, and in Revelation 22:17, 17, we read that the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. And so, whether we're talking about the very beginning of God's work on the earth, or whether we're talking about the very end of God's work here on the earth, the Spirit of God is front and center. God reveals himself, as I said, in three persons. The King James calls that combination, that Trinitarian combination of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the word that the King James authors made up was the Godhead, because there really wasn't a great way to translate the word theotis, which really just means the fullness of divinity. But when you read that word, understand that what it means is that the Father was fully divine, and the Son was fully divine, and the Holy Spirit is fully divine. And even though we talk about them as Father, Son, and Spirit, they're not three gods, even though they are all three divine, even though they are all three part of that Godhead, even though they are all three part of the fullness of divinity that is revealed to us, nevertheless, they're not three individual gods. They are three persons who make up God, and yet right away in the book of Genesis, when we read that God was making man, he said, let us make man in our image. Even that early Hebrew word for God, Elohim, that I am on the end of it, pluralizes it. That is the plural God who speaks of, let us make man in our image. So he even speaks of himself in a Trinitarian fashion. So the whole Bible is Trinitarian despite the fact that there are still people debating it today and still arguing, some will even argue, the oneness doctrine, that God became the Son and the Son became the Spirit, that they are all one and the same person. The Bible doesn't speak that way. And importantly here in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, we have seen a division of responsibility. We have seen a division of activity. We have seen what the Father does and we have seen what the Son does But when it comes time for us to be sealed, we are not sealed in the sun. We are not sealed. That is not the down payment. Instead, the deposit of the Holy Spirit given to us is the pledge that God gives us to guarantee that everything else he has promised us is true. If you are going to go buy a house, if you're going to purchase a house, you'll put down some earnest money. Well, that is the same idea here. This word pledge means an earnest, a down payment. It's a down payment that God has made to his people, the people that he chose before the foundation of the world. Those people who he wrote down in the Lamb's book of life. Those people who he has predestined to an eternity with him. Those are the people who receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee, and that's the exact word that Paul uses, and he doesn't use it just once. As you're going to see, he uses it frequently when speaking of the Holy Spirit to say that the Holy Spirit is like a down payment from God that shows us, guarantees to us, that everything else he has promised us is true. I don't know about you, but it's really difficult for me to imagine eternity, I'm a guy who needs an occasional nap. It's hard to imagine just eternity. And yet, I have the down payment of eternity. I have the ever-living spirit of God who was there and participant in the creation of the whole world, who will be there and be participant when it all wraps up in the new Jerusalem. That Everlasting, ever living spirit of knowledge and truth exists within me and therefore even though I can't comprehend the eternity to come I know it's guaranteed by the very fact that God has made that first payment and that's how Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit God, if we're getting theological about it God determines what reality is so our understanding of reality has to be aligned with God's own revelation of himself. So the Trinity is a biblical reality, even if its very existence kind of stretches our concept of how reality works, because we, living with Aristotelian logic as we do, we say one plus one plus one equals three, and that's just logical, that's just rational for us. And God says, yeah, but when it comes to me, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. And so either we have to go with our Aristotelian logic, we have to go with our very formalized, very physical minds and say, no, 1 plus 1 plus 1 is 3. And if you're going to have one God as he speaks of himself, then there can only be one of him. But God doesn't speak that way. God speaks oftentimes in paradoxes. Things that are difficult for us to fully grasp. But if God is the definer and the maker of reality, then when we conceive of the heavenly reality, we have to understand it within the context of God's own revelation of himself. And he has revealed himself as being three persons, one God. And that is the ontological trinity. So, the doctrine of the Trinity means that there's one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one in essence, but he is three in persons. So, these definitions that I've been throwing out so far can kind of be broken down into these essential three truths, which is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are each distinct persons. Secondly, each of those persons is fully God. And number three, there's only one God. And once you kind of wrap your brain around it, whether you comprehend it or not, once you wrap your brain around it, you're thinking in God-type ways. You're expressing reality the way God expresses reality. Steve, if you would, look up Philippians 1.2. Tom, if you would, look up Titus 2.13. Mike, if you feel like reading? See, the closer to the front you get, the more likely you're going to read. I'll read. Acts 5, you're going to read verses 3 and 4. The reason that I handed those particular verses out is that the verse that Steve is about to read us from Philippians 1.2 is going to declare plainly that the Father is God. Then Tom's going to read his verse and it's going to say that Jesus is God. And then Mike's going to read his passage and it's going to say that the Holy Spirit is God. And so again, this ontology that God lays out is undeniable biblically. Uh, Philippians 1-2, if you would, Steve. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From God our Father. So the Father is God. Tom's going to read Titus 2.13. Actually read 2.11, yeah. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there Jesus is referred to as God. Mike, Acts 5, 3 to 5, if you would. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie?" to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did not remain
0: your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart?
1: You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words,
0: he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it.
1: So Peter began by saying, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he said, you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. So he considered the Holy Spirit to be God. Therefore, we have to say the Father is God. And we have to say Jesus is God. We have to say the Holy Spirit is God. But then the Bible also indicates that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all distinct from each other. For example, the Father sent the Son into the world. That's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that verse tells us that the Father sent the Son. That makes distinction between the Father and the Son. Likewise, the Son also returned to the Father. That's John 16.10. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit into the world. That's John 14.26 when Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, And bring to you remembrance of everything I've said. Okay, well that's distinction. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And therefore the Holy Spirit just has to be distinct from the Father and the Son. Because Acts 2.33 says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you now see and hear. So there's distinction, there's distinction of categories, there's distinction of function, there's distinction of purpose, and yet they are all three in complete unity with each other. So you see complete unity between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and you see distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are all collectively the Godhead, they are all God. All three persons of the Trinity are intimately involved in the salvation of anybody, For instance, the Father chose some before the foundation of the world. That's what we've been reading the last couple of weeks. The Son died to redeem those particular people, and the Holy Spirit seals those persons, and that secures them for all eternity. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved in the salvation work. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification, which is being made holy, being separated, being set apart, in sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. So, Father, Son, and Spirit are all represented. In this saving work, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter, in describing the salvation of people, describes it as a work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, a moment ago, I said that there's unity and there's diversity. Let's look at an example of unity. John 14, 16 to 18 Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father, I, I will ask the Father, that's someone else, and he will give you another helper. There's the Holy Spirit. All three are represented in that verse. So that he may be with you forever. That would be the sealing part. And then he is described this way, that is The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it, the world, does not see Him nor know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you. That means He stays with you and He will be in you. And then Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How does Jesus come? In the Holy Spirit. So there is so much unity that if you have the Holy Spirit, if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then you have the Father and the Son as well, because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all involved in the salvation of anybody. And yet when you read Luke 22, starting at verse 39, you're going to see this diversity that I talked about. So there's this amazing unity, but then there's also this distinctiveness between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Luke 22, verse 39, Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's distinction. That's Jesus saying, I'm here to do this. You're in control of this. You can determine what I'm going through, but I'm the one who's actually going to go through it. If you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. That sounds like distinction of wills to me. And yet there is unity between them. In the baptism of Jesus, we see the father speaking from heaven when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And the spirit comes down and descends on Jesus like a dove. You read about that in Mark 1, 10 and 11, but you see the father speaking from heaven. You see the Holy Spirit landing on Jesus. There you have father, son, and spirit. You have the ontological trinity which is described over and over and over again. In the beginning, says John 1, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. And the word was with God. That's distinction. And the word was God. That's unity in just a couple of words. The word Jesus was with God and he was God. So we are to understand that he is a distinct person who has distinct particular participation in the salvation of people, but he is also fully and completely divine, therefore the word Godhead, what else are you going to call it? John 1.18, Jesus says, No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, the only begotten God? Well, that's Jesus. But no man has seen God at any time. And yet some people saw Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, they were seeing God. And then Jesus says, The one who is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father distinction and unity he has explained God the word there is exegeted he has displayed God he has explained God so even though no man has seen God the father People saw God the Son and God the Son explained God the Father. Therefore, the best explanation and definition for God the Father that you're ever going to find is listening to Jesus because He's the only one who actually has seen the Father and is in the very bosom of the Father who is beloved by the Father. Therefore, whatever He says about the Father is more true than anything you imagine about the Father. So we have to go back to what does the word say? John 16, 13-15, we see that even though there's this close unity between them all, the Holy Spirit is also distinct from the Father and the Son. A moment ago, I showed you distinction between the Father and the Son. Now I'm showing you that there is distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. John 16, starting at verse 13, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Who is he listening to? He's obviously listening to God the Father. He's listening to God the Son, and then he's speaking, but not by his own initiative, not by his own accord. He's not making up things that are separate from what the Father and the son have said but he will tell us he will teach us he will bring us to understand the things of the father and the son therefore he's called the spirit of truth why is it truth that he's speaking because he's speaking from the father and the son and the son is the truth but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come, and he shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, That he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. There's the function of the Holy Spirit. To take what belongs to the Father that was given to the Son and then disclose it to us. So you see distinction of purpose, distinction of, for lack of a better word, jobs. Distinction of participation within the salvation of any person. He speaks about Jesus. He takes from Jesus and he shows us the truth in Christ. In other words, the only reason that you have faith in Christ today, the only reason that you know anything about Christ today, the only reason that you are trusting Christ with your eternity today is because God chose to give you his spirit who then inhabited you And is the spirit of truth who is teaching you and leading you into all truth. And that truth he is bringing you is the truth of Christ through the power of God. So they all have their own participation in the salvation of anybody. Now for very many years, and I can go back and I hear it on early recordings. I was sitting with Mike last night at dinner, the Patterson family, and Uh, I'm not ignoring you, Nicole, I know you and little Mike were there too, but Mike in particular was telling me that at his work, he listens for like four to six hours a day, and he said, I think I'm totally caught up with everything that's on the archive. And I was sort of embarrassed because every once in a while, I go back and listen to me on the archive. Number one, I was talking really fast, because I was younger, and man, a mile a minute. But number two, on occasion, I would refer to the Holy Spirit as it because I was putting the emphasis on the spirit part and speaking of the spirit in a noun form as an it. But the Holy Spirit is not it. Holy Spirit is he. Notice the language that Jesus used. He will lead you into all truth. He will speak. He will disclose to you. So that means that the Holy Spirit is a person the same way that Jesus Christ is a person the same way that God the Father is a person who all have distinct purposes and have complete unity. John 16 starting at verse 7. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Okay, this is kind of helpful, the helper. That's the word parakletos. That means the one who comes alongside. That's the one who is lifting you up when you're falling down. That's the one that's helping you through the valleys of life. That's the one that's encouraging you. He is helping you all the way along. The helper will not come to you if I don't go away. Well, that's distinction. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus going away, going to the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father is the reason that he sent the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a guide, as a teacher, as a leader to lead us into all truth because Jesus himself said he's going to teach you, he's going to guide you in the ways of righteousness because I won't be here. I'm going to the Father, but I'm not going to leave you an orphan. I'm going to send you my spirit. He will then act like a governor on your life, and he will teach you and guide you and lead you. Now, if you're anything like me, and once again, I hope you're not, but if you're anything like me, you've had the experience of reading your Bible, reading some portion of the Bible that you've read before, you're familiar with it, and then as you're reading it, some part of it, comes alive for you. Some part of it is quickened, some part of it speaks right to your need at the moment, speaks to your soul, convicts you at that moment. How does that happen? It's just ink on paper. How does that happen? It's because it's the very word of God which Jesus said the Holy Spirit of God was going to guide you in and lead you and teach you in so that you would understand all righteousness. And he's acting as the substitute in the place of Jesus who said to his apostles, I have more to tell you. You just can't bear it yet. But later they were going to be able to bear it when the Holy Spirit came on them and then they were able to prophesy and speak and write what we call the New Testament. So remember that the Holy Spirit is always teaching, always guiding within the confines of the word and the truth of God. Now that's really important to remember because there are people out there who will tell you that they heard something from the Holy Spirit. Oh, I got a word from the Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And then they will tell you what the Holy Spirit said, and most often, it won't match anything in the Bible. It's some new revelation, they claim. Yet Jesus said he won't speak of his own initiative. He'll only speak what I have already taught, what I have already said. The Holy Spirit will remind you, Jesus said, of the things that I have said, of the things that I have taught. Therefore, if anybody tells you that they are speaking by the Holy Spirit and says anything to you that you can't find in the Bible, run! Get away from that person because they're just making stuff up so that they can look like they're more holy, more tuned in than you are. So get away from those folks. If you have a Bible, That's the word of God. And if that Bible comes alive to you, it's because the Holy Spirit has quickened that word to you. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. When I say impersonal force, I mean like like gravity. Gravity does not have a personality. It just works. The very fact that Shane is not floating up off his seat at this moment is because gravity demonstrably works. But it's impersonal. It doesn't care about Shane. Sometimes people speak of the Holy Spirit in that way, that he's just some kind of impersonal force, but he is actually a person with the characteristics of personality. It's shown by the fact that he has particular qualities. He has particular activity particular characteristics that can only be said about a person for instance he speaks in hebrews 3 7 we read therefore just as the holy spirit says today if you hear his voice harden not your hearts and that's really really interesting Because the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting David from the Psalms. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. And yet the author of the book of Hebrews says, that's the Holy Spirit speaking. So if you read the phrase, harden not your heart, and it speaks to you, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the word of God that was already written down beforehand. But if the Holy Spirit speaks, he has to be a person. He has to have the characteristic of personality. The Holy Spirit thinks. The Holy Spirit reasons. Acts 15.28 says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is given the ability to think and reason and decide what's good. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 11, again, the Holy Spirit thinks and understands. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Okay, so then the Spirit of God thinks and understands. According to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11 the Spirit of God has a will. We saw previously that Jesus said that he had a will and that the Father had a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But one and the same Spirit works all things. He's talking about the spiritual gifts and the distribution of the gifts distributed by the Father and then distinguished by the Son. But the one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each person individually as he wills so the holy spirit has a will he thinks he reasons he talks he wills and according to ephesians 4:30 he feels because we're told, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit is capable of grieving. That means he has feelings. And he gives us personal fellowship. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He has fellowship with us. I was sitting one time. Should I tell this story? Yes. Do you speak for the group? (laughs) Okay. Well, fair enough. I was sitting one time with Elder Ward. We were sitting on the platform of a little church the other side of Shelbyville. We were sitting next to each other and the deacon got up to begin the service and he began by inviting the Holy Spirit to come join them. Elder and I were shoulder to shoulder and he leaned over to me and he said, he's already here. I said, yeah, exactly. The Holy Spirit is not waiting for us to invite him to fellowship. He being the Spirit of God, calls us to have fellowship with him and the Son and the Father. He is the one who calls us out from our sinfulness. He's the one that calls us out to understand everything that is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He is the one that establishes the fellowship that we have with the Godhead. In other words, he's already here. He's already doing his job You don't tell him what to do. He's doing what the father told him to do. He's doing what the son has told him to do. And he invites you into personal fellowship. And boy, when I got to that one, I just had to sit and marvel for a little while. Because you may know me kind of, but I know me. And I know people who don't like me. I know people who don't want to have fellowship with me and that the Holy, may I emphasize that adjective for just a moment? The Holy Spirit of God, not just the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God who is totally holy, righteous, fully removed from everything that is sin, that Holy Spirit has fellowship with me. That's remarkable. It's an act of astounding grace and goodness on God's part that he would allow his spirit to fellowship with somebody like Jeff. Everything I've just described to you are qualities of personhood. He's clearly a person. You can't describe him any other way. The personhood of the Holy Spirit is distinct from the personhood of the Father and distinct from the personhood of the Son. They are all three real persons. They're not just three different roles that God plays, the way the oneness Pentecostals would describe him, because there is distinction between them. There is distinction between the three persons of the Trinity, but that does not mean that any one of them is in any way inferior to the other two of them. Because they are all three holy and righteous. They are all three divine. They're equal in their power. They're equal in their love. They're equal in their mercy, equal in justice, in their holiness, in their knowledge, and in all their qualities. They are separate from us. They are completely and utterly holy, all three of them. If there's any one passage that most brings that all together for me, it's Matthew 28, 19. When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. That word name right there means authority. We've talked about that a lot. The name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That proves equality. Because he didn't say, just baptize people in the name of the Son because he's the important one. Instead, he said, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So even though they are distinguished as individual persons, they have perfect equality because people have to be baptized into the authority of all three. And so we baptize in all three names. But secondly, notice that each person has to be a deity because they're all placed on that same level. If any one of them is not deity, then none of them are deity because we're baptized in the name of all three of them. Jesus, obviously, would not have told us to baptize in the name of some mere creature. So therefore, to say you have to be baptized in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, he is saying all three are deity. There are really three, historically, if you look back at the history of the church, the three earliest and greatest ecumenical creeds are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. I grew up memorizing the Apostles' Creed, that was all part of my Lutheran education. But then once a month, we would all recite the Nicene Creed together. But all three of them are structured around Father, Son, and Spirit. All three of them are Trinitarian creeds. So the earliest creedal form of what it is we believe as Christians, those creeds are formed in a Trinitarian fashion. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin. But notice that it is Trinitarian in its form. I believe in Father, I believe in Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So let me take one more stab at seeing if I can sum up the doctrine of the Trinity for you here. There's only one God. We're okay with that? yes. Throughout the Bible. That's the Shema. The Old Testament Shema says, hear, O Israel... Our God is one God. Okay, so there's only one God. The Father is God. Are we okay with that? We've already seen a verse that proves that. The Son is also God. We're okay with that? The Holy Spirit is God. Mike read us the verse that says that. But the Father, follow me here, is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit, And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And they're in unity. That's the best definition I got for you. If that confuses you, that's just what the Bible says. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they are three in one because they are not the same. Because we see distinction between them. The Spirit then. The purpose of the Holy Spirit. Let's focus in on that so that we can get to the verse that we're trying to get to before the morning is over. The Spirit brings peace. Shalom is the the Hebrew word for it. It's a sense of feeling that everything's right. That everything's okay. Everything is working in harmony. And the only way you can have that feeling is if you know that God is sovereignly in charge of everything. Because right now the world is, what's that word? Stupid. The world is absolutely off its rocker right now. And yet Paul says that we have a peace that passes understanding. That people can't comprehend how it is that we can have peace and confidence in the midst of this kind of crazy world. Well that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very fact that we have the Spirit of God reassuring us that God's sovereignty has got control over this world is the way that we can say, well, then it's going to be all right. Everything is in harmony. Everything's working the way it's supposed to. This is supposed to get crazy. For how many years have you heard me say, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse? Because that's what the Bible says. Before Christ comes back, it's going to get gloriously dark, but it's glorious darkness because it is a darkness brought about by God. So, it is God, the Spirit, who gives us this shalom. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, this is what will manifest within you, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness that's Paul's list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4 the first three verses Paul says therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul expects the church to be forgiving with each other, to be kind to each other, to be forgiving to each other, because we all share the same Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit, he says, is the unity of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in churches... Oftentimes, you'll find people who, under any other circumstances, if they were working together or if they were hanging out together, if they were neighbors, they're just people who would not get along. They just don't get along. They don't have any tolerance for each other. And yet, you can take those same two people who don't get along generally. Did you just tap your wife when I said that? (laughs) Don't deny it. And yet, you get them into a church and they have the unity of the Holy Spirit. And for some reason, people who otherwise wouldn't get along suddenly get along. And their differences are secondary to the fact that they have this astounding unity in the Holy Spirit. And because they have that unity in the Holy Spirit, that's the reason they can walk in all humility and gentleness with patience. Showing tolerance, which means just putting up with each other, but doing it for sake of that bond of love and that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You can't expect that out of any other group of people other than Christians who have the Holy Spirit. All of God's elect, all the chosen members of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. They all receive the Holy Spirit. It's one of the chief things that we have in common. So knowing that it really ought to increase our bond of peace with one another. And now finally we're where I wanted to get. The Spirit is God's down payment. His guarantee. His pledge. That everything else he has promised us is true. Second Corinthians one twenty one says... Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who has sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So Paul understands this theology and promotes it over and over that the Holy Spirit is given to us by God through Jesus Christ. But once he has given it to us, the same way that Jesus said he'll be with you and he'll abide in you, that word abide means he's going to stay in you. In the Old Testament, you can read about like King Saul, the spirit of God landed on King Saul, and he prophesied, and apparently prophesied with such accuracy that the sons of the prophets started asking the question, is Saul now among the prophets? And yet later, the spirit of God departed Saul. Okay, so when Jesus said to his disciples, he'll be with you and in you, that's a whole new concept. That's a whole new idea. He's going to abide with you means not only is he going to take up residence in you, but he's going to stay there. Paul simply uses the word sealed in order to describe that. If you were a king and you wrote an edict, any kind of letter that you were sending to anybody else in order to prove that that letter came from the king, the king had a seal, a signet ring, and they would seal wax onto the edict that they would scroll up, and then he would press his mark into the wax so that the receiver of that letter could see that it was right from the king because it had the king's signet on it. Paul knows that when he chose the word sealed. The Holy Spirit given to you by God is the sure and certain seal that you belong to God. And he is the pledge, he is the down payment of everything else that God has promised you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting to read at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, man, I feel like that every single day. I feel like this earthly tent is getting torn down. Can I get a witness or am I alone up here? We know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. That whole new body thing, I'm really looking forward to that. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, so there's a promise from God. You're going to get a new body. This old body is going to wear down and finally break down completely. But you have a new body, a new building from God. A house without hands that's going to be an eternal house. And it's going to live as comfortably on planet earth as it abides in the heavens. You're going to have a body like the body that Jesus Christ himself had. Who went through a rock who went through a locked door, who was as comfortable at the Sea of Galilee frying up fish as he was being gathered into the clouds of the heavens. Same body could accomplish all that. And that's the kind of body you're promised. Okay, you don't have it yet. You're living in the body you've got right now. The poor, tired, achy body you've got right now. Or is that just me? You're living in this mortal body that is falling apart and yet you have this promise of an eternal body in the heavens. How do you know that's true? How do you know for sure that you're going to receive an eternal body in the heavens? For indeed in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we Having put it on, having put on that new body, will not be found naked. We'll be fully clothed in this new body. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed. In other words, we don't just want to be out of our body and and naked. We want to leave this body and be clothed with our new eternal body so that what is mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. There's great language. So this mortal body is going to be raised in this newness of life. How do we know that's all true? Paul tells us in the next sentence. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us His spirit as a pledge. Okay, so Paul just gave us wonderful, astounding, miraculous, hard to imagine promises for eternity. And it's real easy to think, yeah, but that doesn't help me now. Right now I'm aching. Right now I'm groaning. Right now I'm tired of this body. How do I know that I have this future promised eternal perfect body By the fact that God has given you his Holy Spirit as a pledge. How do you know if you have received the Holy Spirit as a pledge? How do you know if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is in you and abiding as a seal from God on you? How do you know it? You have faith in Jesus Christ. And if it wasn't for the spirit, you would not and could not have that faith. You could not have the confidence that when you leave this planet, you're going to be okay with God. That you're going to stand before God and not have to answer for your sins. You're not going to be judged by God. You're not going to fry. You're going to live for all eternity in the splendor and the wonder, the majesty, the glory that God himself made for himself. You're going to get to experience all that proven by the fact that you have faith in Jesus Christ as your savior that his blood fully accomplished everything necessary to get you from here to there therefore since you have that down payment since you have that pledge i'm here to tell you cuz the bible's telling you all the rest of it is true because you already have the down payment and the down payment is provable the very fact that you have that faith proves The rest of it's true, and that gives us peace, and that gives us confidence, that gives us the ability to walk through this crazy, stupid world saying, yeah, but somebody does know what's going on. Ephesians 1, 1. That was all introduction. You know the rule. You know how this works. Ephesians 1.1 now let's follow the logic Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in himself with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, having had faith. That is the Greek word, pistuo. Every time we come across this English word, believe, I have to take the time to point out that that is a form of the word pistis. It's the word faith. This is just the verbal form of the word faith. And in the English language, we don't have a verb for faith. We don't have faithing, and so we're stuck with the word believe. But notice that faith, as it's used in the Bible, has a very specific object of faith. Among human beings, you can say that you believe just about anything, and everybody else has to agree with you because that's what you believe. You can apparently be a six foot four, 200 pound. Male and say, I believe I will go compete with the girls. And apparently, nobody can say, No, you can't. Because whatever you believe is good. But the Bible doesn't allow for that. The Bible has a very specific object of faith. And therefore, having heard the gospel of your salvation, having understood that it was God who predestined it, who foreordained it, who determined it before the foundation of the world. Having received it and had faith in it, which means you have full confidence that when you leave this world, you're going to be okay before God because of the finished work that Christ has already accomplished. Because of his shed blood, because of his cross work, because of everything he did and nothing of what you did, for that reason, you're going to be okay. That is what faith is. And having heard the gospel of your salvation, You have believed it, you have had faith in it, and you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And here Paul calls him the Holy Spirit of promise. Now we have already seen that the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of truth. He's also the Holy Spirit who is your comforter. He's also the Holy Spirit who guides you and governs you through this life. But Paul realizes that he has just laid out some utterly wonderful and hard to conceive of promises. And so he says, you have already been sealed with that spirit of promises. And since these are promises from God, God gave you the Holy Spirit, verse 14, as a pledge of our inheritance. Why are we getting an inheritance? Because of son placement. Because we've been adopted into the family of God. Having been adopted by God, we become joint heirs with Christ in everything that Christ has already accomplished and deserves. And through astounding grace, we get to participate in that inheritance. How do we know we have that inheritance? That wonderful inheritance, that heavenly inheritance, that holy new body inheritance. How do we know that's all true? Because we have the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance. He has already given us the down payment of everything to come. That's how we know it's going to happen. He has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption, this whole section began. You might recall a couple of weeks ago, we talked about redemption, talked about what it means and what it is, and that it is us being bought off the slave market of sin because of the finished work of Christ, the fully sufficient price that he paid, which was himself, that he spilled his blood as a ransom price in order to purchase us. Having accomplished that redemption, there is this view to the redemption of God's own possession. Don't you like being called God's own possession? I'm glad he didn't call us neighbors, passing acquaintances. I prefer the language of God's own inheritance. You know, when you read the first part of Ephesians that we've been reading for several weeks now, people will say to you, Well, if that's true, and if God did everything, and if it's not up to you, and you didn't have a say in it, and you didn't make a choice in it, if you didn't participate in some way, then you're saying that you're just a puppet. God did it all, and you did nothing, and that makes you a robot. And really, the truth of the matter is, and I've made this argument before, according to the Bible, there is no neutrality. You either belong to God or you belong to Satan. That's just the reality. You're either a child of the woman or a child of the serpent. It's just that plane. It's been that plane ever since Eden. In other words, one way or the other, you are a puppet. One way or the other, somebody is influencing you. Somebody is pulling your strings. Somebody is causing you to be the way you are. And it's either going to be Satan or it's going to be God. Thank God for the God's possession language. Amen. That's why I prefer to be the possession of God. Because if you're not the possession of God, guess who you belong to. It's why Jesus walked around saying, you're of your father, the devil. He compared fathers. There's either father God or your father the devil. There's no neutrality. There's no gray area in the middle. And so God gave you the pledge of the Holy Spirit of promise guaranteeing you an inheritance with a view looking forward to the full complete utter buying back and redemption of God's own possession for what purpose? To the praise of his glory. That's why he's doing it. To the praise of the glory of his grace. How often have we seen that phrase now? He did everything according to the counsel of his own will. He did it all according to the kind intention of the one who does everything according to his own will. He's doing it all to the praise of the glory of his grace. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be singing, Oh, how great I art. Not only because that would be terrible grammar. But because it's just not about you. It's all from beginning to end about God. And I can prove it because God made everything when there was nothing and no one. So therefore he did it because he wanted to. It was his will. It was his determination. And then he saved particular people because he wanted to. And he does everything according to To his own will. And according to his own will. He made you his possession. Thank God for that. Get down on your face. Before that God. And say thank you to him. Because he chose you. Despite you. You got it? it. And father. Son. Holy Spirit. We're all participant. In saving you. So really, how saved are you? You're really, really saved. To lose you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the complete, omnipotent, eternal power of God would have to be overthrown. You're secure. You're saved.